Hello, everyone, and welcome to Singularity One-on-One. Singularity One-on-One is a podcast feature Singularity Weblog, where you can go and listen to it or download it in full. As you already know, my name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and as always, I will be the man with the questions. Today, I'm privileged to have Jerome Lanier as my guest on the show. Jerome lives in Berkeley, California, and is known as the father of virtual reality technology. In addition, he has worked on the interface between computer science and medicine, physics, and neuroscience. Most recently, Jerome is the author of the manifesto titled You're Not a Gadget. Hi, Jerome, and welcome to Singularity One-on-One. Hey, how are you doing? Excellent. I'm uh, absolutely um, elated to have you here on the show today. And um, I will share with you a little um, sort of background story about how I uh, came to uh, really wanting to invite you. Um, and that was basically, um, first I read your book, You're Not a Gadget, which is a fantastic book, I thought. And it made me see and consider uh, many alternative um, points of view that I haven't seen and considered before. Uh, but, but also I watched a, a, a YouTube uh, video recording of you where you're arguing um, why the, the singularitarianism is a, a sort of a new religion. Or, or as you call it in your book, uh, um, just like others, basically rupture of the nerds. So, um, those two, uh, were the reasons that I really wanted to get you as a guest on the show. And, um, I, I would be aiming to build the interview towards those, but let's start at the very beginning and a little bit perhaps with your background first. Can you share with us um, how and why you got interested in issues such as advanced technologies in general and virtual reality in particular? Oh, gosh, you know, um, well, for the first one, just being interested in technology, I mean, it's, um, <clears throat> I think I got interested in it when I was young just because, um, well, for one thing, it's something one can do that matters, you know, I mean, um if you are technically able to not do technology, you might feel like a bit of a waste because technology is the main thing that makes uh, the human situation different over time. Well, actually, I should qualify that. I think changes in technology are necessary to make the human condition different. They're not sufficient. I think ultimately people decide what to make of technology, but uh, technology is what gives people options to, to reinvent themselves anyway. And uh, so, I mean, it's, and then it's just, you know, of course, it's fun. I mean, I almost feel like this question is so obvious that I hardly even know what to say. I mean, anybody who could possibly listening to this ought to get why it's cool to work in technology. So <laughs> it's like so basic. It's sort of like saying, like, why do you breathe or something? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't even know how to go there. But virtual reality was just this, um, oh, I don't know. It's I'm, I'm really into um, sort of uh, aesthetic experiences and, and seeking extremes of experience. And, and virtual reality was the natural kind of approach to technology that would appeal to me. Um, you know, I mean, these things are so basic that it sometimes things that are just so basic or so pervasive have this kind of quality where it's hard to get outside of them enough to really answer the question as you've, as you've posed it. But, 
Well, I just, I just can't. I sort of. I just have trouble imagining somebody really not getting that. I, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, the reason why I I'm asking this is because uh, one thing that I haven't mentioned yet is that you're also a musician, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, music is a technology in in itself, right? Uh, both the musical um, experience is conducted via musical instruments, which are requiring certain kinds of technology. So my follow up question here was. Uh, whether your interest in art in general and in music in particular was preceding or sort of uh, arising at the same time as your interest in technology or how did one impact on the other? Hmm. I, I, don't, I don't know. You know, if you'll forgive me for saying this, uh, th- this is a, a kind of question I'm asked a lot. And, then, and unfortunately, it's very hard to answer because... Um, uh, this is about events long enough ago in my life that I, I don't fully trust my memories, and I, it might not be, it might be hard to tease it apart anyway. But um, I've always been interested in both that I can remember, um, and uh, I suppose music must have come a little earlier because at the time I was growing up, it, it wasn't like today where um, you know a little kid can play with an iPhone or something. It was a it, it wasn't as easy to get access to certain kinds of technology. On the other hand, you know, in a lot of ways, I was I probably was doing more complex uh, play with technology than a lot of kids are today because we, you know, kids today uh, get access technology to technology within this sort of um, controlled and constructed and fake kind of um, context where it's an app, so they'll play with the simulation of physics. Um, but you, you can't play with dangerous chemicals anymore, really, like build your own circuits and potentially shock yourself. Everything's sort of very virtualized and very safe. Mm-hmm. And I grew up um, in a different way where I, I was like, um, I mean, you know, it depends on which age you're talking about, but I was like running through old junkyards and collecting. Um, I, and look, I, I was taking apart like oscilloscopes and, and wiring them together to make weird um, pattern generations visual pattern generators out of theremins and stuff when I was, oh God, I don't know, 10 or 11 or something, mm-hmm. which is, might sound extraordinary, but the truth is any 10 or 11 year old could do that given the chance. I, I just, I think it's a bit rare to get that sort of chance. So uh, I think uh, a software simulator of, of something like that would happen today. And I, you know, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting change because I think something's gained and something's lost. Uh, I love software but software always underrepresents reality, you know, and, and reality just has this depth to it and this potential for surprise and subtlety that um, you just can't get from software. Uh, mm-hmm. But anyway, um, yeah, so I, 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 I'm afraid I haven't answered your question directly, but I hope it's at least responsive. <laughs> well, well, in a way, you're going into the direction anyway that, that I want to take our conversation next uh-huh. to, and that's um, I want to get to the motivation behind your work, whether it is the sort of the motivation of an artist uh, or, or, or of a scientist? Oh, well, you know, I, <laughs> these are, you're asking these, these very general questions, and, and I feel like the questions assume a sort of um, theory-directed inner life that I don't think anybody has. At any rate, I don't have it. It's not as though one sort of sits down and has this sense of like these are my ideals and these are how I'll order them and then this is how I'll act. Maybe a few people do. Some people historically have claimed that, I guess. Somebody like Lenin or something. <laughs> but um, um, the the um, 
for me, it's it's not like that. I sort of, um, I I just uh, love doing various things, and 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 the analysis of why can sort of go on forever. But I, I don't know if we're ever granted quite that level of self awareness. Uh, um, when I do music, I'm chasing. Um, something that's hard to describe, but a, a sense of, um, I, I think of music as form without content. It's a sort of a kind of a pure form. Mm-hmm. And there's something about that form that, and this might sound mystical and goofy, but anyway, to me, this, there's something about finding the forms of music that kind of transcends the, um, oh, I don't know, the, the particulars of our little finite lives. I feel like you're working in some sort of a, another zone that has, um, a, a deeper connection outside of your particular time frame, and it's it's and that's perhaps mistaken. It might be some sort of false faith, like a religion or something, or maybe not. I mean, I, I don't really know. As I say, it's hard for me to be certain. At any rate, I love doing it um, for for whatever reason. And then uh, uh, science um, is a little different, um, and I, I I'm actually. I am a scientist sometimes, but a minority of the time. Uh, but I, I do, I have been a scientist in, in uh, some areas of uh, cognitive study and also in physics and a few other things in collaboration with various people. And um, that's just like this, you know, curiosity uh, and awe that the, the usual things people would say about science is trying to get a little closer to what's going on here. This <laughs> weird place we find ourselves. And, uh, um, engineering is something entirely different from either of those. To me, engineering is is to you know specifically to affect the the, the world to help people. It has a very immediate and practical goal in general. And uh, and my writing and all that is something else yet again. That's sort of um, an attempt to just understand what we're up to as best as possible. And and and. Uh, convey that to people or try to goad them to think more about it, that sort of thing. So these are all very different. There's not just sort of one theory of life for me. So you wouldn't be able to pick um, one single sort of um, descriptive of, of Jerome Lanier as a computer scientist or an engineer or a musician or a composer, a philosopher, a visual artist, a virtual reality researcher or an author? Well, I mean, I um, guess you're you're all of the above in a way in that the, case. Yeah, I mean, respectfully, I I just have to tell you that this is the question that I'm asked constantly and most often, and it just mystifies me why anyone would ask that because what what possible point could there? I mean, people. I, I mean, I don't. A lot of people do a lot of things these days, and and um, I just think it's. I mean, it's just the stuff I like to do. There isn't anything to say there. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, I, I mean, I just, I just, I've been asked this so many times, and I, I have, I just can't think of a response that's really useful or fun at this point. You know, I don't. It's just stuff I do. It's really that simple. Yeah. To me personally, it's interesting to see how people perceive themselves or identify themselves. Of course, that may be very different from how they're being perceived by others. Um, because, uh, but it's always interesting to me to see how I perceive myself, for example, and others perceive me. And that's why I want to ask, uh, how others perceive themselves and see, uh, how that overlaps, uh, if it does at well, all. I mean, um, let me say something that might be, oh gosh, I mean, I hope, 
I want to say this with some delicacy, but frequently discussions about self-definition are important when you're trying to market yourself because you do, one doesn't feel adequately successful or something. And so you try to come up with a story that's easy for people to remember and might be help promote oneself or gain, you know, mental market share among others or something. And of course, in these days of, you know, Twitter and Facebook and everything, everybody's trying to sort of spin their wheels competing for mental market share. And so they're always working on these uh, self mythologies or something. And well, I'm overgeneralizing of everybody, but I mean, the thing is, I'm at a point in my life where I'm feeling um, kind of adequately successful. And so I don't feel compelled Mm -hmm. to work on my story and and what I found is that when that sort of self-promotional motivation just isn't operating, the whole, you know, the whole other, it just all kind of fades away. Like you just don't care anymore. Um, but at other times in my past, I probably, if you had, when I was sort of more worried about not having succeeded as much as I wanted to, and you'd, if you'd asked me the same question, I might've been able to spin some tale about computers and music or something. But I, I just, you know, I think at a certain point you don't, one shouldn't have to do that anymore. Okay, so let's see if, if we can go more into the meat of the matter here. And mm-hmm. uh, in your book, you say that the whole point of technology is to change the human situation. Um, you, you kind of briefly touched on it when you were speaking uh, about uh, being an engineer. So what would, for example, from your, your point of view, be one beneficial change to the human situation that has not realized yet? And and how does it relate to to your work probably or to what you do? Hmm. Well, um, there's so many things I could mention. Um, I just turned 51 last week, and I have a lot of friends who are older, and I've been and also my father, and I've been dealing a whole whole lot with the effects of aging, and just due to the demographic bulge, there's going to be a massive age wave over many parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about what technologists can do there because a lot of the difficulties of aging are sort of stupid little practical problems. And, uh, it's, and some of them might have sort of low tech solutions that await, um, discovery, just, just the right kind of little crutch or cane or something that could make all the difference. And, and once in a while people come up with those and those are in a way some of the most elegant and admirable kinds of, uh, technologists. But there's also a lot of room for sort of high-tech stuff of uh, robotics, exoskeletons, um, all kinds of things like that. And, of course, I'm not the only person interested in that. But I, I think there's a huge opportunity here. Medicine is extending lifespans, but it's not necessarily making those extensions as good as they could be. And there's, there's a big gap to be filled there. And, of course, to the degree people age better, it's also better for those who are younger at the time because then, you know, old people aren't as much of a burden and all, um, and they're happier and everybody gets happier. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, and so there's, there's just, there's just a lot of, of good things there to think about. Um, I still, you know, in, in telecommunications, I, um, there's, there's been so much attention in the last, oh, I don't know, a decade and a half or so on, on, uh, kind of, um, Schemes of just who gets connected to who, you know, like Twitter and Facebook, and those kinds of schemes aren't. There's some value there, and, and there's some interest, but I'm so much more interested in how people connect, and I'd still like to see like a a really good telepresence system, meaning one in which all the basic human factors are addressed. So, mm-hmm. 
Does that impact on on uh, your goals with your own work? Or what oh yeah, you absolutely. Do? Oh hey hey, absolutely. And, and in what I've been, way? I've been working on that for decades. I'm de- I'm 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 uh, very interested in that problem. Is that part of the motivation behind working on virtual reality and so on? Well, I mean, in, not initially. Initially, virtual reality for me was a desire to have the most intense possible experiences um, and to share them with people. That that's it was a sort of a very useful thing, and that absolutely remains. It was a desire to make dreams become shared and real and intentional and all these things. And I, I that that sort of um, perhaps crazy <laughs> motivation is with me to this day. And I, I really still love that stuff. But um, over, I guess in the nineties, I, I really, maybe even in the late eighties, I remember, but some, sometime well into the, into the development of virtual reality, I started to really think about just people connecting in a more realistic manner and whether the tools that we associated with virtual reality could help with that. Mm-hmm. And I, I still think that there's a whole, whole lot to be done there. Um, and I've had the good fortune to do a lot of experiments and uh, while there've been a few disappointments on the whole, I'm, I'm, I'm more enthusiastic than ever that, that, it, that this is a great direction. So, mm-hmm. so what I really want in the future is uh, what, what you could call a sort of a holographic illusion that's one-to-one scale and includes all the little subtle uh, subconscious cues between people and would be good enough to say play music with somebody at a distance uh, well and there, there are huge, huge technical barriers that, uh, some of which we've we've met and others we haven't. It's it's a it's a very non-trivial problem, and it might be the kind of thing that we can't ever quite do well enough. And even the best we can possibly do is still sort of um, um, phony in some way. But you know, I ha- I think we might be able to get somewhere with this that's really good for people. I I, I want to find out anyway. Mm-hmm. Great. Um... Another uh, interesting thing that you say in your book is that, uh, for example, uh, Deep, Bl- uh, Deep Blue uh, was a team of people, not a computer, but, but a team of people coming up with clarity and elegance of thought. And thus it was that team, those people behind Deep Blue, who defeated uh, the world chess champion Gary Kasparov, um, what do you think about uh, Watson and his recent win in Jeopardy? And is that different in any way from Deep Blue and Kasparov? Well, I, I have a piece about Watson in the current um, MIT mm-hmm. Tech Review that I can refer you to. And, I mean, you know, I think both of them, they, there was a similarity in that um, there's a kind of a desire by some PR people at IBM to to do a certain kind of spectacle and branding of IBM, um, which is pretty distinct from the work itself. And so I, I always feel a bit awkward here because I, I do think that the public spectacles of these things convey a lot of confused and stupid ideas about science and what people and machines are and all sorts of things and about what was actually done technically. And um, I, I don't necessarily mean to criticize the, the 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 people involved, the, the computer scientists who did this stuff, who are really just working on problems that interest them. So I, I want to try to um, draw some kind of line and make a distinction between the PR spectacles and the way it's presented to the public and then what was actually done. Um, and uh, I, I that's often a hard line to draw. Uh, my original um, 
criticism of uh, the Kasparov game was published in an old IBM magazine, and I, I haven't. I, I, I'm trying to be part of my my uh, world of peers rather than be opposed to it, and so and it works pretty well. But I, I just really do want to make that clear. So, in the case of um, the, uh, the the Jeopardy contest, I mean. In, in a sense, there, there, a lot of the sort of same fallacies were, were um, brought about. Where um, one thing is that you, um, by by having the software compete with a person, um, a very interesting thing happens, which is it's not it's taken out of the context of other similar software. So instead of the scientific process where you're working within the context of work by peers, you sort of create this theatrical context where you're um, a unique um, sort of mystical phenomenon all by yourself, and that, I, I think that that detracts from progress in technology. So there's there's a sort of an objection there. Um, so just to contrast, um, when uh, DARPA ran the grand challenge for robotic cars, which mm-hmm. I thought was just great, I I loved that, and I was I was um, I was I thought it was, a, it was fantastic. What was great about it is that even though you could say, oh, well, that's another form of AI, but the thing is it was presented in a way that that's the way science and technology work, which is with different teams competing against each other so that the state of the art was relative to the work of people rather than to sort of some theatrical presentation, which was totally ungrounded. And so uh, um, the other thing about the Grand Challenge is it really spurred on innovation. It really functioned. It it made great television, uh, better than the Jeopardy show, in my opinion, and and you know that's a, that's a much much better model. So so with Jeopardy, first because of the theatrical thing with the person, you remove yourself from the the sort of more rigorous technical process that can really help people learn and, and improve. And then of course there's all these confusions where you pretend something done by people is sort of the machine. Um, you also subtly change. You have to change the game a little bit to make the machine be able to win, and that change sort of reduces the human qualities of it. And in the case of Jeopardy, um, I mean, the whole thing about this is that both both chess and uh, Jeopardy have in common that they're games of nerves and where you're sort of psyching out your opponents to some degree. Like in Jeopardy, you might try to make an, one of your opponents a little nervous so they screw up or something. And in chess, you're totally playing mind games with the other people. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if you go to a classic... Uh, chess games with you know Bobby Fischer or something they're all, they're all playing mind games with each other and the mind games are a really interesting part and, I think um, Gary Kasparov's nickname was the beast actually yeah, yeah sure and so the thing is that when you um, you redefine the games in a way that's like just purely about the information exchange which is in a way a great shame so there's a, so there's a sense that humans have reduced themselves by agreeing to redefine the game to not include all that human stuff and then um as far, and then also, I mean, the um, uh, the thing is that by by creating all this theatrics to make the machines seem like they're sort of getting human, you're actually obscuring the genuine accomplishments of the engineers who built these systems. So, um, on the one hand, I think that the um, I think that the Jeopardy system was kind of um, I think its its function was kind of inflated. Um, I, I think the most interesting critique of it was really the one that uh, Stephen Wolfram did, where he just ran the the set of questions that had come up on the TV shows through Google and Bing just to see um, 
you know, if you just used existing search engines to get the answer with just a, an extra little overlay of uh, filters to sort of pull a likely answer out of search results. And they actually did pretty damn good. I mean, the, the increment wasn't that much. And probably, by, you know, probably with just a little bit more of uh, work on the heuristics for applying them in that way, they probably could have done about as well. And so there's this, there's this way in which um, it was just kind of a reframing of a level of performance that we already expect from search engines. And it, I don't know. There's, there was a, there's something. I, I think it was. It, you know, the whole thing was kind of doctored up to create an illusion of a certain kind of capability. But meanwhile, um, the actual work behind these things is quite interesting, and it's not unique to IBM. It's going on at dozens of labs and communicating the way the algorithms work to the public for real would actually be much more interesting ultimately if it could be done well, and I'm sure it could be. Once again, analogous to what happened with the Grand Challenge with DARPA where you saw people really struggling with different algorithms and different sensor um, methods and all that. Just how do you get these cars to drive themselves? And that stuff was just totally cool and fascinating. And, you know, if instead you'd said, well, we're going to have a self-driving car, you know, race against a race car driver, you know, <laughs> the top the top guy from NASCAR or something, you know, I mean, that could maybe that's what IBM will do next or something. That would be sort of theater, but it wouldn't be science. It wouldn't really be educational. It would be kind of phony and it would be kind of a waste. And and that to me is the big problem with all this AI stuff is that it creates this sort of phony framework where instead of doing real science and engineering, you get lost in this this sort of undefinable, like, let's replace people kind of a of a agenda and it just makes you to a bad engineer because you no longer have a precise definition of what you're going for because nobody knows what a person is. So, so you're, 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 you know, you become this sort of sloppy. Oh, that's why, that's why I call it a religion. It's no longer engineering. Mm-hmm. So, so let me just get this right. Then it, it, would it be fair to say that in that sense, you're, you're arguing that um, the content is, is worthwhile, but it's the presentation that's problematic for you. Well, it's a bit more subtle than that. I mean, it just sort of has to do with like what your agenda is. I mean, um, if like let's let's forget about all these issues about about um, information processing. If I if I just told you that I want to design a refrigerator, but instead of objective criteria like the uh, efficiency and the performance, how cold stuff can get, and how much you know, the, the materials cost and how durable it would be. These are all things that can be defined and measured and, and, and an engineer can work with those. But if I said, I told you, I want to achieve the aesthetics of pure refrigeratorness, <laughs> you'd say, well, what, the, what is that? <laughs> you know? And, and um, when we, uh, the, the AI thing does that with information processing, we, we sort of pretend that we have some objective criteria because of Turing test like things where we can put on these theatrical shows Mm-hmm. But actually, we don't. There's, it, we're just basically um, relaxing our precision of engineering goals uh, and somehow pretending we aren't. And it just it just makes us in, it makes us into fools, in my opinion. You know, I mean, it doesn't. It's not. It it, it we, we lose track of of actual successes and actual progress. Um, I've I've always been an enthusiast for understanding how the brain works as well we can, as best we can, and I've worked on models of parts of the brain. What I really just object to really, really strongly is the sort of vague agenda of making computers like people, um, because both because I think it makes you're more likely to make people machine-like in the end when when you make an interaction work. I mean, an example of that is what I was talking about, where we defined away the sort of nerves part of both Jeopardy and chess. 
Mm -hmm. So in that case, people are sort of reducing themselves to make the machine smart. So that's one danger. But another danger is we don't really have the design criteria we can understand anymore. We're working on sort of a vague fantasy, and it becomes like a sort of religious exercise or an aesthetic exercise. And, you know, to me, if I'm going to do engineering, I want to do engineering. You know, I want to be able to tell how well I did. I want to have results that I can measure objectively. And the the whole AI framework throws all that away for this fantasy. So is that is that then the the sort of uh, main argument also behind why um, the, 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 the technological singularity is perhaps of nothing more but a new religious idea for the geeks or for the nerds? <laughs> well, I mean, um, oh, I guess, yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, you have to understand, for me, the singularity has been around for a long time because I, I must have been arguing about the singularity, God... When did I have my first argument about it? In my teens at Caltech, probably. I don't know. I mean, really, way back. I mean, um, I uh, this was like in the early 80s. This used to be like a typical argument at Marvin Minsky's dinner table. <laughs> uh, and so I, it's not, you were talking about it as a new religion. Actually, I think there's, it's actually kind of, it's older than a lot of stuff. It's older than a lot of um, weird fundamentalisms in, in the world. Um, it's been around. Well, I mean, yeah, three I mean, or four decades or even a hundred years uh, is relatively new compared to the major religions. That's 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 what I meant. <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's funny, like um, a lot of the fanaticisms in the major religions actually are pretty recent. We sort of don't realize how, you know, there might have been like a few theorists who were talking about... Um, Oh, I don't know. Um, certain kind of Salafi thoughts in Islam, for instance. Yeah, there was always this thing of like people who'd been in jail in Egypt and stuff, but like it really kind of took hold a little more recently as, as a movement. And, uh, I can give many other examples. Um, anyway, whatever. It's, uh, uh, so yeah, I mean, to me, the singularity is, um, it's just recreating the same stuff that happens in other religions. I mean, even no matter how technical you are, no matter, how good a programmer you are or whatever, you're still basically powerless in the winds of fate and death and, you know, just the awful contingencies that we live with. Um, you mm-hmm. know, these like little weird fragments who somehow experience this fleeting life, you know, and that can sound bleak. Actually, I think within our little fleeting lives, we can have sort of, um, kind of a, a timeless, uh, One of the interesting features here is that. Can I just finish? Sure, sure. And so, so in response to in response to those fears, you know, we can sort of imagine afterlives. We can imagine some grand project that we're the special heroes of, or something like that. And and that's what all the religions are about. And and Mm -hmm. and the and the singularity kind of precisely mirrors them, you know. And and it might be just inevitable that this is what people do. Yeah, I mean the, the the commonalities are just impossible to ignore or deny. Mm-hmm. I mean, immortality is always the major if, issue of religion, um, and and is is one way or another uh, associated with uh, sing, both singularitarianism and transhumanism. Now, uh, by the way, those um, those are kind of interesting because um, the singularity. Up until, I'm trying to think when this happened. The first time I heard the singularity, nobody was taught, was just, it, the, the assumption was just that all the people would be killed by the machines, um, not that they'd survive or become immortal. 
Um, and the notion of people surviving and becoming immortal happened. And I'm, I'm trying to remember who expressed that first. I don't, was it Vernon Vinci? I think it, it might have actually been Ray. It might have been Ray Kurzweil. I'm not. As far as I remember, it was Werner Vinge in his book, uh, Marooned in Real Time. It might have been Werner, yeah. Where I, the society is in a post-singularitarian sort of uh, society where people uh, do live uh, indefinitely and are able to right. choose their biological age. But, but anyway, but my point, though, is that, um, and even though I think Werner might have coined the term singularity, the idea was around well before, and actually even that phase of the... Uh, Werner and Ray was pretty late in my experience. There was mm-hmm. a, a whole thing before, a whole earlier phase. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, the, the idea can be traced at least to Stanislav Ulam and, and uh, John von Neumann, but uh, one of the things that's interesting to me is that if if you ask a member of any other or, or a follower of any of the other religions, they would readily say, I'm a Muslim or or, or I'm a Jew or I'm a Christian and so on, but the funny thing about geeks or or followers of that new religion called the singularity uh, is that many or most of them either would say they're agnostic or atheistic or, or even Christian or any other religion, but none of them would say they're singularitarian as a form of religion. Uh, so that strikes me as something like, uh, I don't know how to really define it, but as a, a, a sort of a form of a self-denial, uh, in a way. No, it's not self-denial. It's denial of the other religions. In other words, um, every religion, and it's really, like there's a, there's a point where religions start to acknowledge that there are other religions and there can be a tolerance of differences. Uh, but if you, if you just are sure that you know the truth, then the other people just kind of seem like different. They don't count. You don't see yourself as a religion yet because you don't, you know, you, you're, you're just so sure of yourself. And, uh, a lot of, there's a lot of, um, there's a huge problem with a kind of, um, elitism among technical people, which is sometimes called nerd supremacy or, or whatever, but there's this sense that if you're not, um, if you don't get the world in a techie way, you don't get the world and you're, you're, you're sort of, uh, Left behind, <laughs> use the Christian uh, terminology, but you're just sort of, uh, um, or the evangelical terminology. Doomed. You're, you're just, you're just uh, a fool. You're lost. You don't know anything. And I, I think that's a, a that's a sort of a, a shameful kind of um, elitism that we should really shed. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, so so to extend that a little bur- further then uh does that mean that in your opinion the the chance of any potential technological singularity is zero no well no i mean i think it's an absurd framing it's like another version of the jeopardy show what's there's definitely a chance of major technological failures um you know so could we have um could we have mass fatalities because of malfunctioning machines? Yes. Can some people interpret that as a singularity because they were running on software? Sure. But would that interpretation be of any use? No. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, so I do worry about large technological failures, especially um, when you have a lot of systems that work together so that you could have systemic failures. Um, sure. So, so, you know, am I worried about... Uh, malfunctions of software, you know, network software driven, 
instrumentation? Yes, absolutely. But the framework of the singularity of, of the singularity is a uh, um, a genuinely useless one for thinking about that. So I, I so I, I can't I can't accept it as a meaningful question. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, in your book here. Um in one place you say that there might be some truth to the ideas associated with the singularity at the very largest scale of reality. Um, but then sure. eventually end up concluding in that same chapter that the rupture and the singularity share one thing in common, and that is that they can never be verified by the living. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, what I was trying to get at there is that if um, the, the difference between a religious fanatic and somebody who's like sort of um, a religious non-fanatic <laughs> is is sort of in this sort of certainty about imminent timing of of whatever their um, eschaton is, whatever whatever their end of days is. And so, um, if uh, if you're like, for instance, there's, there are these billboards all over the United States now that the world's going to end on later this month, right? And mm-hmm. There are a lot of people who've sold everything and, and all that because they're awaiting the rapture this month. And, you know, it's when you believe that you know when it's happening and it's soon that you really turn into a nutcase and you do harm to yourself and others. And in my mind, the singularity movement is is sort of doing that. There's, now, uh, speaking more broadly, if we're not talking about, you know, it just being automatic because chips reach some stage in the Moore's Law of Progress or something like that, but if we're talking about some sort of long-term thing where something about humanity as a whole or something about the universe as a whole experiences some sort of uh, state transition, some sort of phase phase transition into something else and that some sort of version of information technology has something to do with that. I mean, of course I'm not going to argue against that. I mean, I don't, I don't want the humanity to stay the same for a million years or 10 million years. I don't want us to die. The only alternative, therefore, is that we'd sort of transform into something. And so... It would be ridiculous to argue against that possibility. I mean, it's also very possible there'd be something even more wonderful that could happen that we don't even know how to articulate yet. Um, but but whatever. So so I'm not arguing against some sort of ultimate possibilities. That I think that would be also crazy. Um, but this notion that we have some way of knowing it'll be in in 20 years or something is genuinely destructive, and and that, and it's a, it's a it's a it's a sign of fanaticism. Mm-hmm. So, so in that sense, you have a very serious disagreement with uh, people with such as Ray Kurzweil, who have a very sort of a specific timeline, if you will, about how things would most likely unfold. Well, I mean, I, I haven't kept up with Ray lately, but um, in times in the past where we've interacted about this, um, it's actually been pretty fun. We used to actually put on pretty good joint joint talks and stuff, and. Uh, at least there was a time when he had a sense of humor about it. I don't. I I just haven't really kept up with him lately, so I don't. I don't know if that's still true. But um, his books don't don't convey it lately, at any rate. Um, so, um, you know, serious disagreement. Uh, I mean, with some people, I do. Sure. I would really. I'm not really sure. I mean, sometimes I think he's in on the joke. It's kind of hard to tell. Because <laughs> he's gone on the record with like perhaps at least dozens and maybe hundreds of very specific predictions attached to very specific time frames. <laughs> and, and, and so that's why. Well, yeah, I mean, actually, um, 
I uh, I haven't played that game as publicly as Ray, but you know, a lot of people in technology sort of do very similar things about like you know when um, when will there be universal tracking of people just because of all the sensors and the, you know the questions like that. And I've also sort of made guesses, and on the whole, it's not that hard to get these things right um, because you can sort of see trends of progress. And uh, I, I think, I think my disagreement with Ray isn't so much about any particular capability that might come about, but the philosophy of how to think about it and how to, and a philosophy of how to engineer well with with the capabilities we have in a given era. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um... I'm afraid we're kind of approaching um, towards the end of our interview here. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me ask you this. Um, in your book, you often give examples of um, how and why Wikipedia, in some sense, impoverishes both the information that it contains as well as its presentation. So I want to ask you, what is the best place to find more information about yourself other than Wikipedia? <laughs> my Wikipedia entry is like all wrong again. It's so funny. I have this. There's a well. There's a well-known episode where I was trying to get the Wikipedia to not call me a filmmaker because I I made one film, but it was really crappy, so I didn't think I should be called one. So um, I <laughs> it took forever. Now they have like all this stuff. They have me in, um, overly involved with the Connect interface and this sort of stuff. It's just like crazy with those guys. Anyway, um, I mean, my thought is I have this book out there, and if somebody really wants to know what I'm saying, they can read the book. And, and uh, You're talking about uh, you're not a gadget, right? You're not a gadget, yeah. 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 Any other references, or uh, the book is the best starting point? Yeah, probably. Or if, if somebody is just like so filled with curiosity of the Kent stand, it's just waiting until I come around to give a talk wherever you live, which will happen eventually and then just come to the talk you know do you plan to be coming anytime soon around toronto in canada because i'd love to come and uh meet you in yeah, person I, would, I actually i was i was in toronto last week uh but i will be back i'll be there i'll do a thing at idea city and i think i'm doing something else with some sort of McLuhan something or other so yeah i'm in toronto a lot actually oh that's fantastic so i'll try and keep up then and, and come and uh visit uh-huh personally one of your talks okay (laughs) all right um so then if there's one thing that you would like for our listeners to take away from this podcast interview today what would you like that to be um a couple weeks ago i did a i an event that i thought was kind of cool and i don't know if there's a video of it out or not but it was a a talk with tim Wu, who wrote the master switch at the uh um was moderated by the dean of the business school at University of Toronto. And if that's out, that that was kind of a cool, that was an interesting session. It's worth looking at. Mm-hmm. I'll okay. look for a link and, and see if I can find one and post it yeah. um, at the end of our... I don't, I don't know if it was recorded or anything. I really have no idea. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so you, sorry, you were going to ask another question. So if, I mean, the, the last question of all my guests usually is the same, and it is, um, if you have uh, one message to our listeners today what would you like that to be oh well you know i i guess what i would say since this is a singularity theme thing probably a lot of the people who are listening are really into singularity stuff for transhumanism or something like that mm-hmm. and i guess what i want to say is um just be open to the fact that you know people change and you might come to have different views and you don't have to feel like you've sort of 
I don't know, like gone soft or 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 um, uh, betrayed your younger self. If you come to a different view, it's it's uh, healthy to change and think from different perspectives, and it's it's good to just uh, try on different perspectives from you know once in a while. And uh, um, don't you know don't don't fall into the trap of feeling like you're obliged to be a true believer or or like um, you know. It, it, it's just not. It, it's it's not ultimately to your benefit. It's to the benefit of somebody else always. You know, throughout human history, and uh, so you know, think for yourself. And um, it's not about listening to me. It's about listening to yourself. And uh, just you know, to, uh, try to not not buy into anything too much. You know, that simple. <laughs> Excellent. Well, um, I think on that note, uh, I would like to thank. Jeron Lanier for taking time to be here with us today. Thank you very much, Jeron. Oh, thank you. All right. Well, good luck. Take care.